Wanna play and us we're back on. in? Okay, sure. Wow, na na na. Yeah, it's another one. Yeah, the girls them summer song. Yeah. Something about the way. Hello and welcome to Idea Lemons Discover Your Inner Awesome Podcast. The conversation show where we sit down with entrepreneurs, musicians, creatives, and just flat out interesting people to help all of us get a better handle on who we are and how we put ourselves out there in that big blue marble called the world. I'm your co-host Rajiv Nathan, as always alongside Martin McGovern, and in this episode, we sat down with my college entrepreneurship professor, Dr. Patrick Murphy. Patrick is a professor of entrepreneurship and management at both the undergraduate and graduate level at DePaul University, as well as author of the book, Mutiny and Its Bounty, Leadership Lessons from the Age of Discovery, a book about the seafaring age of exploration and how mutiny was common aboard those ships and how that relates to mutiny that occurs in organizations in this very day. With that in mind, our conversation with Patrick was about leadership. Specifically, we asked the question, what makes a great leader? Before we hop into it, I want to remind you guys real quick, if you're not already, go ahead and subscribe to this show on iTunes if you like what you hear, and leave us a rating and review. So, quite honestly, iTunes bumps us up in their listings, and more people can hear our awesome show. All right, let's jump right into it and have a listen in on our conversation with Dr. Patrick Murphy on what makes a great leader. I think I finally discovered that I'm uh, born to be doing what I'm doing. You know, you, you hear a lot and you read a lot about those people who end up doing something that doesn't feel like work. And um, I, I'm, I'm one of those people. To me, working 80 or 90 hours a week doesn't uh, feel draining to me. And so I think the way that one gets to a place like that is by not thinking too much about where you're headed. Rather, just focus on the day-to-day and only do what you really like and what you really enjoy, and if something is speaking to you, pursue that. And for what doesn't interest you, try to move away from that, and the bigger picture kind of fills itself in, if that's your operating logic. And for me, it's always been about scholarship and academic activity. That's always been what has inspired me and intrigued me. All of my heroes come from that sort of background. and It's what I've always been good at. And so I did work, I had a corporate job, and that, that's what brought me to um, Chicago. But I realized really quickly that I, I didn't belong in a corporate environment, and so I had to be an entrepreneur or a scholar. And then I ended up earning my doctorate and going for an academic job, and then that led me here. Mm-hmm. So that, okay, so that actually brings up a thought in my mind. Uh, we're talking about what makes, what makes a great leader, or what makes you a great leader, you meaning the individual listening. And one of the things I think comes up a lot is people feeling like they're fake or they're phony because of credential or not having credentials, so to speak. So like my response to that is usually, and Martin, I think you agree, my response is usually credentials satisfy haters, but they don't necessarily inspire believers. Um, and, and you've been teaching entrepreneurship for how many years now? Twelve. So Twelve years teaching entrepreneurship. But you don't actually, you, you never like started your own company, right? And you're, you're an entrepreneur more in the mindset and the approach to how you do things. I'm an advisor. I'm on a couple boards. I've invested in a few, but I, I actually don't want to dive into one. And I, I could easily, but 
I've had opportunities to do so, but it would, I have a very nice perspective right now on what makes entrepreneurial ventures work in general. I don't want to bias myself. Mm. Thinking about in your own, so that in your own situation, do you ever feel like it's, you know, do you ever feel that credential issue? I, and I totally get where you're, where you're coming from. You have, you know, you're able to teach objectively. You don't have to push one thing over another because you have that bias. But do you ever feel like, you know, you don't have this necessarily startup experience, so there's potentially, you know, there might be some students who are like, who's this guy teaching this? I welcome that, actually. That's a great way to start conversations for me. Um, I, I, I've talked with enough people and served on enough panels and advised enough entrepreneurs to where if, if something like that comes up, I'm pretty good at um, demonstrating what I'm able to contribute. It, it's, you know, for entrepreneurship professors, that's more of an issue in the early days. But after you've advised a lot of entrepreneurs, after a lot of your students have become entrepreneurs, after you, you know, I, I've done a little bit with regard to innovation. I, I do have a patent pending. Like, I, I've toyed with a lot of different areas. But I... I have a certain level of expertise that people tend to recognize pretty quickly. And uh, like I said, it's sort of like the metaphor I often use is the guy in the score box watching the football game sees something going on on the field. and He can see or she can see patterns that people on the field cannot see, what's behind them and what the larger team is doing. There are certain things that the person in the score box can't see either on the field. They can't feel certain things and all of that, but there's a really valuable perspective that each party has. I want to be the guy in the score box. And the other part of it is, if I tried to start a business, I'd be disrespecting my profession. I'm not trained to do anything else than write, publish, and teach. That is my profession. That's what I do. And I have tenure now, so I could come in here one day a week and work all all. Every other hour, I could work on a business if I wanted right. to. But um, no, I, I respect my profession enough. I'd be disrespecting the students and the reason I'm here if I were to do that. And another thing I would point out is that a lot of people think that just because they can do it means they can teach it. Not true. Um, right. yeah. A lot of the entrepreneur, we probably get five resumes a week coming in here, people wanting to teach or adjunct. And they think because they've run a business or done this, that means they can teach students to do it. But they know one case really well. People like me know hundreds of cases pretty well. And so when you deal with a diverse student group or a classroom, all the different diversity of questions, you're much better able to answer those. It's like a lot of the business people come in here and they start to tell war stories. and That'll carry you for about two class sessions. It's like three <laughs> hours. But after that, you have about 90 hours left that you gotta fill, and that, that's trouble. Yeah. That's, it's re yeah. it's really a different mindset too, because if you're trying to start a company, you're not thinking necessarily about. Um, you're you're really you're just like you said. You're siloed in the one problem that you're working on, and you're not thinking about how other people are trying to navigate through their day or manage other their workloads. You're just worried about your workload and how the things that are coming through your calendar impact your day. And so, whereas when you're a teacher, you're really you're more concerned about development of people versus creation of any sort of one idea and you can be really you can build a lot of expertise in human development um, which is a completely different skill set than entrepreneurship and that's why these seasoned entrepreneurs maybe can't teach and and all those different ideas come together you become the world expert 
in a particular area when you become a successful entrepreneur. You know that business and perhaps even that new burgeoning industry better than anybody else. That's like the textbook definition of bias. You know something really well and, and it skews your worldview. Um, you don't talk to a restaurant entrepreneur and get them into like um, the construction business. And, I mean, it's just two very different sorts of worlds. Um, and, and if you trade places between two entrepreneurs across sectors like that, they have to learn everything all over again. There's another competence related to teaching and working with entrepreneurs in general because they all follow a very similar kind of process. But if you do a PhD and if you do it right, you learn how to think about what otherwise would be a complex universe of mental stimuli. A good, well-trained professor knows how to ignore what is meaningless and focus on what is true score, true score variance and ignore error. That's what mm -hmm. you learn how to do when you're, when you're a professional thinker. And just doing things, you, you don't learn how to do that. And people think experience is valuable. It is valuable. But not all of it is positively valuable. There's a lot of noise in the experiential world, and it can bias you and lead you away from things. And being a somewhat objective scholar who's able to look at a lot of different cases and find out what they all have in common is what I do. Mm -hmm. I think, I really like what you said about the score box mentality, because it's so true. Like, we've seen, Martin and I have seen in building Idealum, and we can look at what someone else is doing and within seconds pinpoint what they are be able to say you should think about doing this instead or you should look at this because you're not looking at this and we might be making that exact same error ourselves but since we're in the throngs of it it's impossible to see that that's what we're doing it's like being in a relationship like you can always be Absolutely. objective about other people's uh dating problems and then the second you're dating you're like this is the hardest thing on earth <laughs> i can't figure it out that's actually a common metaphor that i use i probably used it in your class mm -hmm. um relationships are a very good example because it's the definition of subjectivity. It may even be unhealthy if it's bad for the people in it. And his or her friends might say, you need to get out of that situation. You know, look, look what happened. It was really, and the person will rationalize, right? Rationalize yeah. what happened and say, you don't understand, you know, what we have. And they may be right, but they may be wrong. But regardless, you have two individuals having a radically different view of the same mm -hmm. phenomenon. So entrepreneurship is like that. It's like that subjective when it comes to entrepreneurs yeah. and their ventures. And that happens too with like you'll like relationship coaches are a lot of them are single, right? Even though they can look at everyone else's relationship, it's very tough for them to internalize it because that's that's why you need coaches and that's why you need whomever because you need someone to be able to objectively look at something for you. Are a lot of relationship coaches relationship coaches single i didn't know i mean that. i may have made up the, the a lot part, a lot is subjective but no you may be right but i, I think i just think in general that or like you know like psychiatrists or therapists they see their own therapists sometimes and like there's this ladder of you know there, there's a therapist helping the individuals and then there's a therapist just helping other therapists because you can look at someone else all you want but you're looking at yourself is like almost impossible you need someone's help with that it's That's like watching right. frazier like yeah, <laughs> they're both they're both therapists or whatever, or, and they and they spend the entire show just bickering with each other about the most minute, right, little tiny things in their lives. Obviously, she thinks we're always together. That we're some sort of couple. <laughs> That's ridiculous. We spend lots of time apart. 
Besides, who is she to talk? Look at her and Harry. They go everywhere together. They're married, Niles. <laughs> Still, there's no reason for her to call us odd. But wait, she never called us odd. Listen. Does it matter? You get the one, you get that other one. Personally, I think the whole arrangement is a little... Is that thing off the hook? Ah, see? What? She never said odd. We're getting upset over nothing. <laughs> nothing? Is there a good end to that sentence? Personally, I think the whole arrangement is a little what? Charming? No, you really, you stop overreacting. You get Fraser, you get that Niles. She didn't say that. She said you get the one, you get that other one. What makes you think that you're the one and I'm that other one? Because I am the one giving the party and you are that other one. Yes, well, I'm the one that invited her, so that makes you that other one. That's absolutely ridiculous. It's you know in the depths of no, your heart, I knew, I knew no foundation the truth whatsoever. All right, wait, 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 wait. This is absurd. Why don't we just call Allison up and ask her what she thinks is so strange about us? We can both get on an extension. Better yet, why don't we both get on a bicycle, built for two, ride over there ourselves and ask her what's so strange about us? One of my favorite authors, um, Norman Mailer, refused to ever write an autobiography because he had this worldview of phenomena and events that he that was very personal that he used to write fact-based fiction, books about the war, books about social movements. And he never wanted to write an autobiography because he believed it would smash this wonderful lens that he had through which he viewed the world. And he stayed away from that. It was spooky to him. Mm -hmm. And... I think for a lot of career academics, we incur the same kind of block. When we really get into understanding a phenomenon very well, we have to be careful not to become part of the material we're trying to explain. Because then you run into um, all kinds of subjectivity problems. I think that's why, Martin, you'd be a really good professor. Because you, de you detach from everything. <laughs> yep, yep, not connected at all. <laughs> I can make connections, not connected. No, but I think it's really interesting because one of the things we've been we've been focused on a lot lately is worldviews. And I'm curious to know, as you've been seeing all these entrepreneurs come through and some start businesses, some don't, have you seen some common themes in the ones that actually make it and the ones that don't make it, or maybe in the successful ones, things that are similar between them? Yeah, um, a lot of stuff. Human beings aren't very good at managing growth. It's just a kind of phenomenon that we're not trained, especially in business, to think about clearly. We, we're, we're steeped in very linear approaches to how things change and how, how to explain variance. Entrepreneurs who have a sense of how to understand growth treat their enterprise as like humans manage things that grow, like whether it's a child or a plant. You, you have to treat it differently when it's very small than you do when it, when it gets larger. And at the same time, you have to let whatever it is that you're managing take on a life of its own, which means you have to be more and more hands-off. That's a really tricky thing for a lot of entrepreneurs to do because for something so personal, to let, let it get more and more independent and away from you um, because that's best for it is tough. So the ones that do that, whether they're coached to do that or whether they just do that naturally, that's a big one. Um, Another common element here, um, some people are really good at separating ideas and people. Like, um, especially in this culture, we, we, we believe in this American business culture that a bad person can have a good idea or a good person can have a bad idea. 
And, and so when we criticize an idea as being bad or we celebrate it as being good, it, it's not really a personal attack. We kind of, we do take a lot of things personally, but to a large extent we don't. We can do things like brainstorm in a meeting and argue. And then when the meeting's over, we're, we, we understand we're still friends. Some people, um, even some cultures in other parts of the world, they, they don't, it's very different, right? And so for the entrepreneur with the, not just the failure rates, but the need to evolve a business and adapt it and uh, change it for the better, that divide is very important. So some people are very good at that. And when they get criticized, they're actually intrigued and they want more criticism. They don't want to avoid it. A lot of people avoid it because it's so personal, but the ones who separate themselves from the idea and they treat it oppositely to how they treat people. How do you treat people? You, you love them, you marry them, you're loyal to them. They change after you've married them you don't leave them you know it's like this sort of with an idea you shouldn't be like any of that if, if it changes or if, you, if you suddenly don't like it for even a superficial reason you should consider ditching it mm -hmm. um, but that requires a, a line between people and ideas and a lot of entrepreneurs who make it have a really profound sense of that they're, they're not put off by negative ratings or criticism that's a pretty common you think, um, and the, I think for anyone to answer this, but if you're an entrepreneur, are you automatically a leader? Like by nature of what you're doing, you have to be. I, I think you might be thrust into a position of leadership, but I don't think that naturally makes you a leader or ready to assume the responsibilities of a leader. I think you're often a leader, but other times you're something more like an architect. Um, you, you, you set the stage for things to occur almost naturally and organically and maybe build a place where a team can do things. And you don't actively lead or articulate a vision. You, you, you kind of let that stuff grow automatically. And that doesn't look like the leadership the way we think about it, but a lot of the best leaders do something like that. So you, I, I think you are a leader if you're going to be an entrepreneur, but there's a lot of different types of leaders. Mm -hmm. Some leaders prefer to control the situation and stay out of sight. Others prefer to lead the troops into battle on horseback and right out front and visible. And all of them can work more or less well, depending on the environment you're trying to go into. But I, to answer your question, I, I think, yeah. But it's got to be a qualified understanding of leadership because there's so many different types of leaders. And by definition, I suppose a leader would be one who articulates a vision or an understanding of something that doesn't yet exist and then is able to compel other individuals to work toward that and then make it a reality. Yeah. That, that's interesting, too, because, um, you know, a lot of times people will say, you know, people pretty much have a stance on whether, their own view on whether they consider themselves to be a leader or whether they say, no, I'm not a leader or I'm not a leader type. But then, like, you go into a job interview, and one of the questions they ask is, oh, tell us about a time where you exhibited leadership. And you're forced to come up with some example of that. And it's the same kind of idea where you can find pockets in your own life of when you have been a leader or when you've exhibited leadership, even though, and that, and that, and it's in that finite amount of time, was when you were a leader. You might not be this, you know, leading the masses your entire life or leading some huge group of people, but you may have be able to say, oh yeah, I led this project team or I managed this team or I took this concept from zero to 100, that kind of stuff. But that's where I love getting into the 
<clears throat> the minutiae and the different classifications of types of leadership. So I was talking to someone the other day and they were saying, do you think I'm a leader? And I was like, I don't know, what's the time you've led someone? Tell me, give me, like, give me a story. And they were talking about how there were these interns at their, at their work and they helped them out and they were like, they would always talk with them about their issues and the, the interns would come to them instead of their boss and how even years later those interns stay in touch and, and good things like that. And I was like, well, I mean, that's mentorship, which is a form of leadership, but it's just not what we are taught to think of when we think of a leader, mm -hmm. but it doesn't make it any less valuable for an organization or it doesn't make it any less valuable for a job. And that, so, okay, so on that point, there's different titles we assign to things. There's, there's leaders, there's managers, there's mentors, there's advisors, there's bosses, whatever you want to say. Are all of those the same thing? Or they all have leadership qualities to them, but are they, can you say in each case that that person is a leader? I think you're talking about a, a lot of context. So um, even the leader of an enterprise, if, um, if they're a really good manager, they often delegate to somebody and let them own a process. And when it comes down to making a decision about you know, what to do about a, a sales strategy or what to do about product development, a great leader will truly delegate that and let them decide, which means that they are not the ones who are determining what's going to happen. Somebody else is. There's a context there. And so in that sense, in that immediate sense, they're not the leader. Or, you know, at any, in any big company, you have people who manage projects. And when it comes to doing the work associated with that project, the person who is the project manager is the one who has the authority to make the decisions about what's going to happen. In that case, they're the leader. When that project meeting is over and then they move on to something else, they're not in that role anymore and it may be somebody else's job. So, but the same people are still there. So leadership is probably half person and the other half is the environment or the situation that you're, that you're in. kind of like one of the tenets of your book of mutiny and its bounty is the idea and you wrote this in the preface is that leadership and mutiny are opposed in theory but are in practice part of the same force of human nature um, and this is an interesting point and it's you know, I think it's like the foundation of your book but it's we always look at leadership as like this oh I have this following and these are the people who are following me through thick or thin but on the other hand of that, the, the kind of the oft-forgotten or the part, the less sexy part of it is that there's rebellion that can occur too when you know, the leadership isn't as people want or expect. So with that in mind, like the you know, balancing act of, of mutiny and leadership, um, why, do, I mean, like what, what makes you say that it's part of human nature to have both? You know, a lot of our um, most influential texts in human history 
have this rebellious impulse. It's kind of like, well, it is an implicitly human phenomenon. No other species removes authority quite the way humans do. They don't coordinate in the same way. They don't wait and strategize quite like we do. Usually it's like one, maybe the strongest young one that deposes the old leader and something like that. I don't know. If you saw Lion King, they coordinated the overthrow <laughs> of Scar pretty well. <laughs> Written by humans. Yeah. <laughs> um, Touche. It, well, it's like, so what is transformational leadership? We, we think of it, like we were talking a little bit about earlier, we think about it as a leader creating a situation in which members are able to do what they do best or do what they feel is right or do what they believe is true and they feel very self-actualized. And the leader is not actually doing that. The leader has created an environment where people can do that. The leader just happens to be very much aligned with the goals of that coordinated action in an organization. In a mutiny, the same thing occurs. It's just that the people have shared values that don't happen to align with the leader's shared values or what the leader or a decision that the leader is making. So the, there's a bottom-up force that's coordinated anyway, but in a mutiny, it's in spite of the leader. In transformational leadership, it's aligned with the leader. So what, what's happening is essentially the same. It's just in a mutiny situation, the leader and the members have oppositional, diametrically opposed perspectives on the action. That's what I meant by mutiny and leadership. They, they, we, we look at them as two very different things, but underneath it, the phenomenon itself is um, functionally equivalent to transformation. Right. That's, that's kind of like, if I get what you're saying, it's kind of like, I'll give you an example. So like in high school, um, I had this one teammate on the track team who kind of like anointed himself captain. He wasn't necessarily like a captain. I don't, actually don't think the coaches ever made him a captain. He just kind of was like, oh, I'm fast. Like I'm, I'm the leader here kind of a thing. But he was a, pretty much a dick. <laughs> like he was the, like, the cocky show-off type. And what was interesting was he was injured a lot. So he didn't necessarily get to show off a whole lot. But... Uh, anyways, then, and so, like, there was this, like, tension that we had because of that, and what, what a lot of people felt this tension, too, with him, you know, being, like, the face of the team, quote-unquote, but not being this well-liked guy. And then this other kid comes onto the team after a couple years, and he was, like, this hot, you know, this hot young freshman who's, like, oh, he's a really fast kid, and he thinks he's hot shit. And what united me and the other, the, the original cocky guy, it was like a shared hatred for the young cocky freshman. Right. Uh, and what is that? It's like my, my enemy's enemy is my friend kind of a thing. Sure. Is, is that kind of what the idea of the mutiny is? It's like you might have opposing viewpoints about other things, but for this one specific instance or this one specific person, you share the same dislike or disinterest in what they're putting out there. To the degree that the unwelcome leader is championing something that you and the other person don't agree with, um, you two share a perspective, you two share values about what the team should be. And what it should be does not involve that individual leading in the way that he's leading. And so in that sense, you two are united and coordinated against him, mm -hmm. and so you may seek to depose his authority. That's the basic mechanism. Another element here too, though, and it's in the book a lot, is that the way we think about trust is 
kind of oversimplified in the business world. We think in terms of trusting a person or, or, or not trusting them, rather than thinking about it in terms of what's actually going on. It's better to think about trust in terms of two dimensions, not one. A unidimensional view of trust is that high trust or low trust. I trust him or her or I don't. And that's sort of the evaluation. But in reality, you can trust an individual, but you can distrust their competence. So there's one dimension of trust. There's another dimension that we can call distrust, which can be high or low. It's kind of difficult to think about because it's opposite. High distrust is bad. High trust is good. Distrust applies to that individual's skill. So in your track team example, it would be how good of a runner is he and all of that. That's either going to be low distrust if he's good, or if it's a great manager, a great engineer leading an engineering department, whatever. That distrust can be low because they're an expert or they're technically um, really, really superior. That doesn't mean that you trust them. When you trust somebody, it means their personal values uh, connect with you and you like them and, and you feel they're similar to you. And so this allows us to explain situations in which a leader is very likable, but they're not very good at leading. Or they're excellent at leading, but they're truly an asshole. And so in the, in the former case, where it's a likable person who's not that good at their job, depending on what's happening in the environment, they may be the best leader. Um, simply put, if the environment is good and friendly, there's not any crises, there's not any huge competitive threats, that's probably the best leader to have. But if your organization is in a crisis situation, um, it's better to have a technical expert who maybe not everybody likes. Things are going to change anyway, and it doesn't matter if you like them or not. Yeah. So depending on the organizational situation, um, the trust profile can flip and it can transpose. But it's important to divide trust into two dimensions. I almost think, though, that like in the instance of being well-liked, it's almost a crutch, or it almost is a disservice to the team or the company or whatever because you're almost able and not that you shouldn't be a like a liked leader but you're almost able to get away with more mistakes and incompetence as you put it like you're able to get away with that because it's people are like oh no but he's you know he or she like they're a good person like you know like we like them it's okay <laughs> like that kind of a thing instead of versus if it's an asshole who gets things done mm -hmm. When you know, like they're kind of, they're, they're feeder to the fire at all times. It depends on the cost of the mistakes. Maybe the mistakes don't hurt the organization that much, um, and maybe the organization doesn't need to change. Maybe it's doing fine. People know their jobs and they're doing their jobs. And day to day, it would just be a much better organizational mm -hmm. life mm -hmm. if they liked the individual who's the leader. Yeah, well, and that's the thing. Like, if it's one extreme, a likable leader who maybe doesn't have a skill but is surrounded by people that have the skill, they're bringing up morale, and morale is what they're fixing versus the technicals bringing up the technical competency, and morale doesn't matter because everything's going to shit anyway. Um, but I think the most dangerous people are the ones who take no initiative to lead, lead at all. You've got all those middle managers, all those people who are in roles where they're both not inspiring people to be around and they're not very well technically able or capable, and so they're just a massive drag for the whole organization, but they're still there for whatever reason. Uh, you know, someone who's a manager for 10 years, but can't get fired, but also can't get promoted. And those are the people that really bring down a company, not necessarily the highly inspirational, but non-technical person or the, or the flip side. Yeah. 
it's hard to think of a situation where um, a highly distrusted individual who's also not liked can add a lot of value. Right. But for the other three quadrants, high distrust, low trust, low distrust, high trust, high distrust, or the other three, um, it's easy to come up with situations where they will. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, obviously, I, I, should, I should backtrack and say that like it's good to be like an asshole, but be competent. Because obviously, that's not... How most people lead. Your goal is not to be an asshole. <laughs> um, like I had a I had a managing director uh, at my last company. Um, when he was there, he was. I think what made him such a good leader was that he was able to command so much respect. I mean, he, he had the he had the the credentials behind him, or he had like the the body of work to his name, to where you could trust his decisions. And then on top of that. He was well liked, but he also was able to approach things in a way where you like you respected his opinion, and you respected the decisions that he made, even if you didn't personally agree with them. And on top of that, and it's like I wouldn't call it a trifecta at this point. Whatever the fourth thing would be, it's a quadfecta, <laughs> quartzfecta. Was he would take the time to like learn what is motivating to the individual and how can he help that individual grow and how can you help that person become the best at their job which is very mm-hmm. tough to do especially when you're at you know when you're once you get higher up in the ranks you you become you you distance yourself further from the day-to-day of what's happening in a company or an organization so to be able to be that high up and still be able to in one way or another show the individual you know like the people that are that are doing the work quote unquote um that you care about the work they're doing and you want to know how you can help their, them and make their lives easier, that to me is, is, is someone who's doing it right. What gets you there in a case like that, what gets you there is not what keeps you there. And um, one of the elements of being self-actualized is that you start to care about the development of other people. And so when that individual or individuals like that are building their career and moving up, there's not always a lot of time to develop others because they need to develop themselves. But once one reaches the top, it, it actually relates to what we were talking about earlier about entrepreneurship. You need to change your tactics as it grows because the rules change. Same thing with a career. When you reach a certain plateau, you, what keeps you there is not what got you there. And so a good switch is to start developing other people around you, which takes a lot of time and effort, but keeps you connected with them. It makes them understand that you care about what their development too, and it therefore endears them to you and they're, they're willing to support what you want to do. And it's actually one of the building blocks of charismatic leadership. Charismatic leaders tend to do that. They make other individuals understand that they care about their development, maybe even more than themselves. Yeah. They have a sense of something larger than themselves. Absolutely. One, so I think one great example of that is like, like Michael Jordan was charismatic he wasn't necessarily like always the most liked teammate but he was very charismatic in the sense that he would do whatever it took to make the people to make his teammates better like there are documented stories of him punching steve kerr in the face and punching other teammates in the face during practice because he got pissed at like how they passed the ball or because they didn't you know they didn't do whatever in the right way yeah like he was kind of an asshole (laughs) <laughs> I would even push kind of. Yeah, he was an <laughs> asshole. I didn't know that. The, you know, 
I spent most of my life not watching sports. <laughs> That's why I'm here. Yes. So, yes. I'm, I'm very clueless about what you're talking about right now. But, I mean, obviously you know who Jordan is and everything. Mm-hmm. But I only know because I saw him play when I was a kid. <laughs> so, he won, you know, obviously they, you know, they won six championships. He's the greatest player of all time. But he didn't always, his way of being charismatic was sometimes it ruffled feathers. A lot of times it ruffled feathers. Like he was known as the guy who would come into practice and when they do their, you know, their inter-team scrimmages, he would be the one who would treat the scrimmage like it was a game and like get really like intense and competitive. But what that did was up the ante and up the game of everyone else around him. And I don't know, and the point I'm getting at is, I don't think charisma necessarily has to be this like, yeah, guys, like we're going to go in and we're going to win and it's going to be like the most fun thing ever and everyone's awesome. Charisma can be, you know, however, however you, whatever, however you need to get by or whatever you need to do to get the people to see it for themselves and, and want to up their own game. You know what charisma means? It comes from old Greek, right? Like not the modern Greek, but the old Greek. Church Greek, it means divine flavor. But I, I mean, kind of what you're saying, though, is that's more leading by example, right? Because Jackson was the actual leader of the team, technically. He was Jordan? The coach. No, Jackson. Oh, Phil Jackson. Phil Jackson. <laughs> okay. Was, um, and, and what Jordan did was he, he was just, he knew he was the best player on the team. And he led by example by saying, if you're not playing up to my standard, get off my team, mm-hmm. kind of a thing. It's, that was his mentality. And... In, a, in something like that, where everyone there wants to be the best, um, well, you know, say Rodman, who just wants to pass the ball to the best. And, yeah, but um, that's his way of being but that's, the best. That's his, his way of being the best, yeah. But, um, but that's kind of the whole point, because it's such a structured environment for basketball and sports and things like that. Versus, um, you know, you can't go into your office and just start you know, punching people in the face <laughs> and saying, I'm the leader. <laughs> you lead by example in other ways. Um, whether that's uh, you know being the person that every single client loves or whatever it is that you lead by example with, leadership is very tied to culture, um, the culture of the organization. So in something like a sports franchise, achievement and winning are about val- they're valued positively by all the people there, and punishing or um, criticizing or trying to do away with performance that isn't excellent goes well in a culture like that. Even in a business organization, if it's a very high energy, very competitive environment, you will see leadership styles like that. If the organization has a different kind of culture, like maybe it values charity or being very benevolent and friendly to others, not achieving or winning, but just being nice, then that kind of leadership style wouldn't fit. Um, So that you can call him an 
asshole for acting that way, but in that culture, through that cultural lens, it's something different than being an a-hole. It's actually reflecting the values. The MVP. <laughs> it's reflecting the values of the culture. Yeah, it absolutely. is the values in action. And the the coach part of that that was interesting that you mentioned with like Phil Jackson. He was the mastermind of it all, and he's like, "Here's my plan now, you minions." You enact the master plan. So, like, Jordan becomes, like, the... In, in war sense, what is... Who's the guy who, who draws up the battle plan? Who's the one who's actually on the field doing it? It's uh, like, general versus... He threw an apple into Eden and let it do its work. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. There you go. That's a good way to put it. But, Field like... Marshall. Okay, yeah. yeah. But, so, like... And he knows his role, though, as the coach, is to give them the tools to succeed but it's not on him to necessarily and he, he would intervene when necessary but he know he knew the culture well enough to know when he should let something play out did versus, phil jackson ever play basketball he did he did yeah he's uh he played for the knicks in the 70s so he understood something about yeah basketball. absolutely absolutely but but his whole thing was like he was nicknamed was the zen master because he's very into that and um he was able to take big egos and get them to work together. So mm-hmm. there was Jordan, but there was also Pippen. You have big egos. He coached Shaquille O'Neal. He coached Kobe Bryant. Two huge egos. He got them... He got Jordan and Pippen to win six championships. He got Shaq and Kobe to win three. His thing was taking amazing players who have... who think the world of themselves and get them to think the world of the other you know, five people on the court and the other ten people on the roster, which is... I, I think this is interesting because it's, it just brings up, I think there's so many different ways you can be a leader. And, and this kind of goes back to like the, when you're asked in that job interview, what's an example of when you've exhibited leadership? It's not always the, you know, like the concrete, oh, you know, I spoke in front of this crowd or I, you know, I, I led the March on Washington. It's not, it's not like that. It's like, no, like there are, there are microcosms. There are small ways you can do small ways you can make a big it sounds cliche but there are small ways you can make a big impact it's it's really at the end of the day enabling people to work yeah if it's a work environment right so it's like if what you're what all leaders are really striving to do is build harmony amongst the people who are doing the actual work and whether you have to be an a-hole or you have to be really nice whatever you need to do to make that harmony happen so that People aren't working against each other and working with each other. That's that's essentially what leadership is. And mutinies happen when that harmony is out of balance, and the leader is making decisions that are against harmony for the, for the organization. Oftentimes, it's it's a leader that becomes disconnected from what is actually going on in the organization for any number of reasons. They can get too comfortable, or the organization can evolve, or the environment can change, and the leader is often not the one interfacing directly with customers or clients, but the people are. And if the customer base changes, they may not be aware of that change and they keep making management decisions that reflect the old way. That can drive a gap between mm. um, the view, the worldview of the leaders and the worldview of the members, which often leads to uh, different kinds of values about what we should be doing, what we shouldn't be doing. And then it can evolve into a mutinous situation. But, and, and, let me know if this is like where your thought process goes as well. The mutiny doesn't, it, it's not necessarily like, 
the seafaring explorers where they literally throw the person off the ship. Mutiny in, in modern day is very much like, I think it starts with the behind the back comments that are made. And then that goes into like, you you know, it's like, oh, shit, so-and-so is walking in, you got to change the subject, that kind of thing. Same thing happened on the boats. Oh, yeah, okay. But it's it's very interesting because you have essentially an 80-foot Portuguese caravel, like 15 feet wide, 60 people on it, but they were still able to keep secrets, um, <laughs> whispering through bulkheads, through the walls, coordinating. It's very... I love the research on the seafaring vessels because it strips it down to the basic details. I mean, for them to keep information secret and coordinate against the leader um, and for the leader to be unaware of it and for the leader to detect it and do something about it, it's just, you know, you can't close the office door all the time and you can't send private emails. It's just very um, basic. And it's very interesting that back then mutiny wasn't thought of as a bad thing in the it was part of being a leader. It happened so frequently on these entrepreneurial ventures that went onto the ocean that just knowing how to deal with it, not just deal with it, but harness it for the good of the enterprise was part of being a good leader. Mutinies happen today. This is why I got into the, the topic area because I, I've worked with so many ventures in the last 12 years. I can't tell you how many mutinies I've seen. I mean, so many. If, if you read the, the, the Twitter book right there on my shelf, three mutinies occurred during the development of that venture. Of three Twitter? times, three times leaders were deposed and it fits exactly the same model as what we saw on the old ships. The mechanism driving it was the same. Um, whereas today, a mutiny is more social and intellectual. Back then it was more physical and perhaps physically violent. But what's driving it is the same thing. Leaders make a decision or an authority structure puts some sort of um, dictum into, into the operations that clashes with the shared values of the members. 500 years ago, it was um, shared values about safety, maybe food, things related to culture. Today, it's related to um, my dignity. You know, people like to be rewarded. If, if the manager is not respecting the dignity of people in the organization, there's... Um, People are going to say, you know, he's not really good. He's not developing us or she's not really um, helping this organization. And they depose him or her through a kind of social method. Maslow's hierarchy comes into play here. If you think about the values at the bottom, it's like the physiological right. and the safety. Those are people share values about those things 500 years ago. And the leader makes decisions that threaten those values. Today, same mechanism, just higher up in the hierarchy. So you get into the social needs and the esteem needs of the people working in the organization. And when a manager does things that threaten those values, same mechanism. It's a backlash against that leader. But because those values aren't as core to the human condition, it's not such a basic reaction that's physical. It's, as I say, more social and mm -hmm. intellectual. Yeah. So I was going to recommend a little Dignity Ditty. <laughs> For a musical Is that P. Diddy's new Dignity Diddy?
one thing on the on the mutiny front of it not being or it, you know it's perceived as a bad thing now but it, in many cases it's a good thing I have a great example that that so Martin knows I love wrestling like WWE wrestling I don't know if you knew that about me <laughs> maybe you've seen it through one of my emails come through that I mentioned it but um, and he's no longer shy about it so yeah Facebook has been all wrestling yeah exactly <laughs> So there was this uh, this wrestler a few back in 2011, I think it was, named a Chicago guy. His name CM Punk, which stands for Chicago Made Punk. That was his wrestling name. Um, he had been in the WWE for a number of years, five, six, seven years at that point, and he was like so pissed off because he kept not getting the chance he felt he deserved. Because in like the wrestling culture, it's like. Land of the Giants, strong survival. You gotta be like, you know, look like Hulk Hogan or, you know, look like John Cena or have these giant muscles to be considered an A player, to be considered one of the best. Well, CM Punk is a guy who's like, has like a fairly normal build. He's not very tall. And he's like, he's he has muscles, but if you look at him, you'd be like, he looks like one of your friends. He just happens to have a whole lot more tattoos. And so he goes on TV one day on, on Monday Night Raw, their, their weekly show. And he does what's called, in the business, it's called a worked shoot, which means he's going to express his real feelings and emotions, but WWE is letting him do it, but they're going to play it off like they don't know it's about to happen, or they don't know he's doing this. It's very interesting. The wrestling world is very complex and interesting and, and cool, might I add. But so he goes on TV and does this this worked shoot where he just rips into Vince McMahon and he's like, "I have a lot of things I want to get off my chest. I've grabbed so many of Vincent K. McMahon's imaginary brass rings that it's finally dawned on me that they're just that they're completely imaginary. The only thing that's real is me and the fact that day in and day out." For almost six years, I have proved to everybody in the world that I am the best on this microphone, in that ring, even at commentary. Nobody can touch me. And yet, no, how many, no matter how many times I prove it, I'm not on your lovely little collector cups. I'm not on the cover of the program. I'm barely promoted. I don't get to be in movies. I'm certainly not on any crappy show on the USA Network. I'm not on the poster WrestleMania. I'm not in the signature that's produced at the start of the show. I'm just a spoke on the wheel. The wheel's gonna keep turning, and I understand that. But Vince McMahon's gonna make money despite himself. He's a millionaire who should be a billionaire. You know why he's not a billionaire? It's because he surrounds himself with glad-handing yes-men. So he's gonna tell him everything that he wants to hear. And I'd like to think that maybe this company will be better after Vince McMahon's dead, but the fact is, it's, it's gonna get taken over by his idiotic daughter and his doofus son-in-law and the rest of his stupid family. And what this did, in reality, he was at, his contract was actually expiring, and, they decided, and, and he didn't want to resign because he was pissed about all this stuff. And then they decided, okay, let's make that like a story within the show. Even though it's real, let's make it a story. And... <laughs> What this, like, this quote-unquote mutiny did was, you know, he goes on TV, and it ends up being this, like, such popular segment that ESPN is calling him the next day, thinking it's real, wanting to interview him, all this stuff. You know, he's getting USA Today uh, at his doorstep, all these kinds of things. 
And what that did was it ended up, you know, it, it built into this story where he was going to get a championship match at the upcoming pay-per-view event. And he ends up winning the championship and then walking out on the company. And then what ended up, we ended up, what people found out later was like minutes before his match was happening, he actually did, they did come to a contract extension. And it was with the caveat that like certain things he wanted to see happen were going to happen within the company. So that in itself, while it was kind of staged, but also real at the same time, like this mutiny that happened within wrestling ended up, you know, while it was like the shocker at first, it ended up changing the course of the next couple of years and into now of what they do within the wrestling world. Like now the little guy actually gets a chance and there was another little guy. Okay. Yeah, you know, like that so kind of stuff. people besides just him supported what he was yeah, saying, Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. That's and, it, and what he was doing was basically voicing fans' frustration, too, right. because so, a lot of fans were getting pissed at, at just the same guys being featured every week. Right. What, what gives an individual power to go up against an authority structure like that is a lot of other people should share the values, or at least some other yeah. people. Um, if nobody agreed with him, the power didn't come from him speaking that. It was because he harnessed or expressed something that other people were sharing. Yeah. Power of mutiny... One person can't undertake a mutiny. It, it has to be... What you, usually there's a ringleader who speaks out, but when they speak out, they're representing the interests of multiple people. Right. And that's what gives it its power. That's what makes the purpose of a, a mutiny something that a leader can't just attack directly because it's an idea yeah. or a value. And I think what, what's key with that is, is you have to know your audience, right? Like that, And this is where I say this is the difference between, say, like a teacher and a preacher. Like, you don't want to listen, and I don't mean, like, in that sort of religious sense, but, like, you don't want to listen to a preacher of, of life, of whatever, who's just going to, like, force their ideals down your throat. You want to listen to a teacher instead. Like, my, the thing I think about is that, that guy on State Street every day who has his, you know, he brings out his, mm-hmm. his speaker. Oh, my gosh. And he's, he's telling everyone how you're not following Christ and you're all sinners for it and all this stuff. Like, that guy is, is preaching to this audience that does not want to listen. He needs a day to let his voice recover. Like, <laughs> it just sounds so raspy, man. Like, it hurts. He's been like that for 10 years. Yeah, right. And, and, and no one will ever listen. Now, I'm sure there's an audience that wants to hear that. But he's not, he's never approaching the audience that wants to hear it. And, and that's where I think this, this is key with leadership and, and, and mutiny, too, is you have to know who you're speaking to and who you're speaking for and on behalf of. You right. can't just assume everyone wants to hear what you have to say. That's right. Well, and then that begs the question, how do you find it? And we can get into like how to get followers and all that good stuff. But <laughs> one of the questions I wanted to ask is, especially in the students that you've, you've taught and all the different people that have kind of come through your lessons, not everyone's a leader. And while everyone may have some sort of capacity to be a leader or a leader in their own way, in their own life, um, not everyone can, is necessarily, or at least from what I've seen, not necessarily right for the type of leadership that maybe is described in the job interview that we talked about earlier. So I was just kind of curious um, if what your perspective on that concept would be of when to maybe step back and let someone else lead. Um, and are people... Maybe just not, not everyone is a leader, I guess, is at the end of it. I think everybody has the potential to lead, but very few actually find the actuality to lead um, from a percentage.
like like anybody, even the most meek, passive person in the world, there's probably something that they know, even if it's very obscure, like how to tie a particular knot in a piece of line. Like they can tie a sheep shank, nobody else can. Well, guess what? If you're going to start the sheep shank company, they're probably a very good person to lead it because they happen to have some knowledge about the technology, the low technology and are able to know the usage of it and all of that. So they're the best one to communicate to others about what's going to happen. Um, most other people have more general competencies, like they're just good at communicating or they know a lot about the business world or they know a lot about a particular industry and that's more generally relevant knowledge. I, I tend to view leadership as the right knowledge in the right place at the right time. Even if you're a very shy individual, if you are able to speak, for example, Spanish and I speak very little Spanish and but I'm I'm comfortable having intellectual debates and arguments but if their knowledge about that language is better and I say something like um like how to say where is the bathroom like if I were to say donde esta la baña la baña and I say la baña because I'm looking for the women's bathroom it's actually not right they right. don't say that they say al baño no matter what but if I were to say, no, 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 I think because it's it's a female bathroom, you know, a Spanish person who knows the language would be comfortable talking me down and engaging me in that argument. Why? Because they love debate? No. Because they are stronger, smarter than me? Maybe, but no. It's because they have the greater knowledge than I do. Knowledge gives a certain kind of boldness. And, and so I tend to view leadership that way. If the person has the right knowledge about the work that needs to be done and the people who are going to do the work, it, it brings a certain boldness out of them. Um, I, I like to view it that way because it opens the door to more types of people who don't traditionally see themselves as leaders to potentially become one or to think that, you know, I could be a leader if there's some context out there where that would fit with me. That's really, oh, that's a really good point because it's almost like the more you know about a subject, the less susceptible you are to irrational behavior and emotions getting in the way. Like, if you actually look at when people are arguing, the person who has the least valid argument is the one shouting the loudest and is the one who's making the least sense. The person who knows the most, they're the, usually the most, not always, usually the most composed. And they're, they're basically, they just use reason on their side. That's right. Um, like, an ex a, a great example of this is, is people who argue sports, like, and I've been in many sports debates before. When you aren't when your when your conviction is strong, but the facts to back it up are not, you tend to, like, the first say like number or metric you throw out there, you tend to like double what the actual like number was. You'd be like, oh, he hit like sixty home runs last year. No, he hit thirty, or he hit like thirty five. But you get so like hyped and so amped on the emotion of the argument mm -hmm. that you just you hyperbolize everything see you're also talking to two people who don't pay attention to sports but that's i mean that's one I, I'm, that's one I, example i'm speaking for myself but i'm wondering if you relate we view everyone's conversation about <laughs> sports as overly hyped and biased <laughs> and completely irrational so fair enough fair enough <laughs> like was it in or out you could look at the video but the person who's rooting for that team is always going to think it's in so that's kind of my view on it. Um, All right, strip it down to its very basic <laughs> core. Sports aside, but that's kind of the that's the idea, though, is that you that's right when you know less, you you 
you're more susceptible to just being stupid about it. Really. Because social interaction <laughs> isn't just based on logic and rationality. It's also based on um, hyperbole and emotion and uh, volume and other things. And sometimes people can win an argument that way. I think you're right about um, the hyperbolizing or the exaggeration that comes across when people don't really know what they're talking mm -hmm. about. They'll try harder to convince you. Very often, they're not just trying to convince you, they're also trying to convince themselves. Yeah. And, yeah, and you can even say, like, oh, yeah, yeah, buy that product, dude. Like, you'll lose, like, 20 pounds from it. Like, no, you like, the promise is probably, like, 5 to 10 pounds, but you're trying to sell that person but also sell yourself on it. Right, or if you've already bought it, you feel mm -hmm. better about the fact that you bought you justify it because mm -hmm. you have a sneaking suspicion you made a dumb choice. But if you get some <laughs> other people to do it, it validates what you have done. One thing I think that comes with the, so the like the Spanish example, like they're just gonna you know, talk you down or whatever. Not just purely out of having the knowledge of the mm -hmm. subject. Um, one thing that comes with that though is the idea of like I think good leaders know their limits. So like. That example, that specific Spanish example, they're not going to, you bring up another subject, or you bring up something that's outside of the realm of that knowledge base, they're not going to necessarily take that same approach if it's something they don't know. That's exactly right. Or something right. they're not comfortable with. Right. Um, whereas perhaps bad leaders, or ones who don't use their power properly, are the ones who don't necessarily know what their limits are, both with knowledge and time and resources, or all, all three of those things, I think, yeah. play into that. That's actually the hallmark of, you know, as a business school professor, that's one of my core definitional elements of what makes a professional. Like, you know, I have a lot of lawyer friends, I have doctor friends, MD friends, and if we're talking about something in the realm of the law or in the realm of medicine, I don't even if I'm half sure or I'm pretty darn sure, I, I don't step over that line and engage them. I, I'll, I'll take it for granted that they're right. And, and in my case, like um, the growth of knowledge and publishing knowledge, and like I edit a scholarly journal, so I have a really good perspective on this. You, whenever I see somebody choosing to debate me on something like that, I know they're crossing the line. I, it, it says something about their professionalism, but the same goes with leaders. They, they have a very clear sense of their boundaries, of their expertise, of their knowledge, but it's professionals too. I, I, I will get people from time to time in lectures who just like to debate or they come back at me, and I, that's a teachable moment because when you graduate, when you start a career, if you're going to become an accountant, and you see something about the marketing side, you know, it's easy to use the language to debate with a marketing specialist about that, but professionals don't do that. They, they're they a little bit more humble about knowledge and they have a keen sense of limits. That's like one of the last things that a young professional learns. The last thing that a young professional learns is to suffer fools gladly. I mean, you're gonna work with people who you have a, you may have a negative view of their ability or their intelligence, but People in the beginning are often frustrated by that. They want to go after them. Man, it's the one who is just able to deal with that and maybe try to develop those people without getting upset. That's that's an important one. That's a future leader. When I see that competence, competency, I know it's a future leader. Mm -hmm.
sang out of tune Stand up and walk out on me Lend me your ears and I'll sing you a song I'll Try not to sing out of key I'm gonna try with a little help from my friends I'll Get by with a little help from my friends Get high with a little help my friends I was not expecting a Wonder Years interview. That was awesome. awesome. <laughs> well, and that actually leads into another point I wanted to bring up tonight, which is how do you get started being a leader? So how do you build your first people that you lead? How do you find those people? How do you create, how do you take the first steps toward leadership? The first step is to know yourself. Um, you get to know your own personality and your own traits and your own desires and your own values. It, it's, it's a funny irony of professional development is that the key to being able to deal with change and grow and deal with the outside world is a changeless sense of who you are. So in the same way that we have confidence when we talk about an idea or an area of knowledge, we also have confidence in our actions when we know ourself in the same way that we know that idea. So it starts with, ironically, again, by looking within and knowing yourself. Then when you communicate, you are able to reflect your values and what you believe in in a way that other people can relate to because they will sense your values in what you say. And if they relate to those, then that turns into a kind of influence. It's um, really the beginning and the building blocks, but without knowing who you truly are, you eventually have to fake it, and then you eventually get into situations where you will find radical uncertainty. That's where true leaders stand out, because the people who know themselves in conditions of uncertainty, just like anybody in an uncertain situation, you resort to who you truly are. If you're a fighter, you fight. If, you're a, if you flee, you flee. If you negotiate, you negotiate. People fall back on who they truly are in conditions of uncertainty, and leaders are the ones who lead organizations through uncertain external situations. So you start by knowing yourself, whether that's meditation, um, talking to other people and getting to know yourself better, reading books that really appeal to you, keeping a diary, whatever it is, um, that's where it starts. All right, so before we wrap up, Dr. slash Professor Patrick Murphy, um, what are you working on and, and where can our audience find you? I'm pretty easy to find if you search around online. Um, I, I'm teaching a number of seminars right now here at the university. One is based on my Mutiny book. Um, the other one is my MBA social entrepreneurship class. We, we do a lot of outreach consulting here. I'm, I'm, I'm toying around with a couple of ideas. I, I have a paper that I've been kicking around that um, I have a passion for history. In the book, we look at the age of discovery. This, this particular paper that I'm kicking around right now is um, from the, um, right before the Civil War in America, there was a social enterprise in the South that uh, spread freedom for enslaved peoples. And um, it was called Neshoba, which is a Choctaw Indian word for wolf. And I, we have a bunch of archival data, and I, I'm writing about its business model and how it, how it worked, and it, it reflects the way a lot of social enterprises work today. So I'm kicking that around. I'm talking with the publisher right now about working on a book based on a concept that has come out of my lectures for the last decade. 
I call the concept the existential edge, and it's a logic for entrepreneurial decision-making. It basically helps entrepreneurs turn uncertainty into risk, so you can make more of an educated guess about what to do when you're a management decision as the leader of an entrepreneurial venture. So the existential edge is the name of it. It's um, I'll spare you the details. Uh, you took my class, so you remember me talking about it. Mm -hmm. But it's it'll be a book eventually. And other than that, I'm very excited about um, the partnership we have with the um, social entrepreneurial community entrepreneurship incubator in Pilsen called Blue 1647. We're launching a coding academy next month where 15 DePaul students will get to take a 12-week coding academy for free. And it's something that they normally charge a pretty high level. Well, it's $2,000 to take it, but they're giving scholarships to 15 DePaul students. We're going to launch that and try to launch some um, entrepreneurial ventures out of that because they'll get to collaborate with all the entrepreneurs down there who have awesome technological innovations. So I have a lot going on. I, I keep saying, man, we like went to DePaul like four years too soon. I know. <laughs> all the cool stuff is happening now. I'm seriously <laughs> missing college right now. Like, really missing college. All right, so so to kind of c conclude and, and hone in the discussion, let's uh, let's each go one by one and say our take on what makes a great leader. You want to start, Martin? Uh, being humble in what you know and knowing that you don't know. I know it's cliche, but really just the whole concept that um, people will challenge you and in order to really be a good leader, you need to be able to take that feedback in, um, process it without getting so worked up over either that person or yourself. And, and your own ego, and uh, be able to change if, if it's necessary. My response is, I, th I think a great leader, or what makes a great leader, comes from a little bit of that. I think it's, it's being comfortable enough in who you are and what you know um, to both um, be okay with people, be, be okay with haters, uh, you know, you're coupled up with who you are, what you know, you're okay with, with there being haters, and that there is more out there for you to learn. Uh, so you're always kind of challenging yourself and, and making sure that you're, you're staying on top of your game. I agree with the need to keep learning and the need to be open to experience and feedback. I would only add one thing. Leaders tend to make mistakes when they're not bold enough, or they're too bold, or they're um, not careful enough, or they're too careful. And there's a lot of little heuristics that I use when I teach leadership here. And one way to balance boldness and carefulness is try to treat large situations, big decisions, as if they're small. That That is a way to trick yourself into being bolder than you would otherwise. But you also need to treat small situations, even seemingly meaningless things that you're doing, as if they're big things, because that's how you remain careful. So treating large things as if they're small in your mind and treating small things as if they're large is a way to keep yourself bold and keep yourself careful. Because a lot of leaders are either too much of one or too much of the other. And it's a little bit out of whack, but that's a good way to remain, um, uh, put yourself in a place where you make better leadership decisions.
Nice. Play us out. That concluded our conversation with Dr. Patrick Murphy on leadership and what makes a great leader. Patrick, thank you so much for joining us. What I love about talking with professors like you is there's just so much objective thought that's put out there purely for the sake of exploration and and finding reason in things. So thank you again for joining us for that. I just thought that was a fantastic discourse and dialogue that we all shared. If you want to get in touch with Patrick, you can tweet him at ProfPJM and also scoop up his book on Amazon. Once again, it is called Mutiny and Its Bounty, Leadership Lessons from the Age of Discovery. Take conversations like what you heard today and push them further by going to Idealemon.com and subscribing to our email list where we share even more stories and dig deeper on topics like this to help us further explore ourselves and develop our personal brands. Let's real quick run through the audio credits in this one. This episode featured a segment from the TV show Frasier, specifically the Dinner Party episode, as well as the June 27, 2011 episode of WWE's Monday Night Raw for the CM Punk segment. While the interludes of this episode featured Patrick Murphy playing the guitar live as we recorded, our show's theme, as you may know by now, is from Chris Leamy. It's called Summertime. You can get that on iTunes today. That does it for this episode of Idea Lemons Discover Your Inner Awesome. Thank you again to Patrick Murphy for joining us. For Martin McGovern, I'm Rajiv Nathan. Until next time, we'll see you. Just the same time. Ah, 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 ah,